0: Well, good morning and welcome back to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the Second London Baptist Confession, Chapter 1, which is of the Holy Scriptures. And this has taken us uh, about six years, no, it's only been a few months, but we have been working our way through Chapter 1, which does um, cover a lot of major and minor doctrines and of course all of our doctrine, the entire rest of the Second London Baptist Confession, is based off of the scriptures. So it is important that we understand the scriptures, that we have the true scriptures. And uh, before we go too far down that path, of course, let's just recall the fact that we are working on uh, the section that's regarding translations and English translations in particular and uh, what translations uh, more accurately reflect God's word. Because, of course, if God did speak specifically and not uh, just give some ideas to people, Um, then we should care that we have the very Word of God, that we don't have uh, opinions of translators, but that we have the Word of God itself. And this, of course, is um, the major issue with the translations that um, are bubbling to the surface today, let's say it that way, and have become popular today. And, of course, the reason that they're generally uh, promoted is that they're easier to understand, that they are in language that people understand today, um, etc. We did not go down that path very far to talk about those, but almost, um, not almost, every one of those excuses is a logical fallacy. It does not make sense, um, if you think about that. Um, Because first of all, just the idea that um, people don't understand it. Well, God's word says what? that someone who is an unbeliever cannot understand God's word, that it's confusing to them. The word tells us that God illuminates the believers to understand his word. So that isn't scriptural at all, to say that it's written in a language that people can't understand. No, people can't understand it because it's the word of God. They didn't understand Jesus and things that he said. He was speaking directly to them in their language. So at any rate, I don't want to go too far down that path. That gets me on a rabbit trail pretty big right there. But uh, at any rate, so we do see this. Well, obviously, the big problem is is that most of the translations today, almost exclusively all the translations today, use what's called the dynamic equivalent translation. We talked about that uh, versus the formal equivalent translation. That was the D-E versus F-E. Dynamic is where they take thought for thought. Formal is where it's word for word, punctuation for punctuation. In other words, dynamic is the translator has to think what did the original message mean to the people, and then what do we have to say for it to mean something today? And that, of course, would be a shifting target, right? Because things that matter, what people understand today, is not the understand thing, the same thing that people understood forty years ago. Would you agree with that? Look, there's a lot of uh, acronyms and things like that, particularly in text that I see for my kids that I don't know what they are. I had to say, what does that mean? And oh, that means this. Well, why don't you just say that? You know, anyway. <laughs> so I hate to think, but yes, there could actually be a version of the Bible that actually starts having some of those acronyms in it. You could see, you know, IRL in the Bible, in real life, you know what I mean? Anyway, uh, again, I'm getting excited and going down a rabbit trail. So let's back off of that too. All right. So last week uh, we ended by with a long quote uh, by John Owen, and he was talking about uh, the integrity of the scripture. And uh, basically we ended with that, and it was like almost a cliffhanger episode last week because... Essentially, we are right at the point of naming names and uh, uh, revealing the uh, uh, evidence, information about translations. Okay, so here we go, right off the bat. All right, oh Oh, man, okay, pause. I got my thing in the wrong place. Okay, here we go. All right, so the standards of verbal inspiration and providential preservation lead us to the conclusion that that only versions based on the Texas Receptus Using the formal equivalent method of translation are the best and most trustworthy translations. Those Bibles in current print today are the Authorized or King James Bible and the Geneva Bible. Now, let me pause for a couple of things. You're going to see all the other major versions here. But these are in print today. So, a Tyndale Bible. A Tyndale Bible. Tyndale used Texas Receptus. all right. So, And it was formal equivalent. It was formal equivalent. Now, Tyndale didn't have access to all of the different manuscripts that um, they had when they actually put together the Geneva Bible. He didn't have access to the manuscripts they put together when they did the King James. So he took what at the time was accepted as the Texas Receptus in Greek and the Masoretic in Hebrew, and he used that for his Bible. So that's a legitimate, that's a legitimate formal equivalent Bible. All right. So the point is we're not covering every single version of every Bible that came out. Are you with me on this? We're just covering the ones that are in print today. All right. The New King James Version, copyrighted by Thomas Nelson, claims to be a version of the authorized version, claims to be a version of the authorized version based on the TRNFE. However, its translation is not faithful. Most of its footnotes refer to the MCT. Questioning the legitimacy of its own text, it has a numerous translation changes which directly impact doctrine. Some of these changes were originally indicated in the MCT version, which means that some of the changes in the New King James are actually based on the MCT and not the TR. In other words, they have changes in the New King James that are actually listed in the MCT, the modern critical text, not in the Texas Receptus. So how did those get into the New King James? Is it a blending? We don't know this. Because the people that did the translation and those who were in charge of it did not reveal all of the processes that they went through for this. But the most dangerous thing is, is that the footnotes refer to the MCT. And you will see this in other Bibles as well. There's even King James Bibles that say this, where they will say, the oldest and best texts say this. Or the oldest and best texts don't include this. I remember uh, one of them I saw that was a, pre- was a Schofield Reference Bible. You heard a Schofield Reference Bible, right? Well, they make Schofield Reference Bibles King James. Well, they have a lot of footnotes that say, the oldest and best texts say this. In fact, in Genesis, the Schofield Reference Bible will say a period of time instead of a day in Genesis chapter 1 for creation, which, of course, is day-age theory. So that's a problem. In accordance with the Confession, the doctrines we believe, the following versions, are considered untrustworthy because they misrepresent the original Hebrew and Greek and therefore corrupt the Word of God. The American Standard Version, that's based on the modern critical. The English Standard Version. The New American Bible, the New American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, the Contemporary English Version, and that's both MCT and DE. The God's Word Version, the Jerusalem Bible, the Living Bible, the Message, the New Century Version, the New English Bible. So, you know, we're saying here, because it's based on the modern critical text, that's the Alexandrian text, and dynamic equivalence. Modern critical text and dynamic equivalence. So we back up here, we see these are just based on modern critical text, but they use formal equivalents. Right? This is because it's based on the MCT and the DE. The New International Version. The New Living Translation. The New Revised Standard Version. The Revised English Version. Today's English Version. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, which has actually changed names recently, that uses optimal equivalents instead of of DE or FE uses a combination of both. They call it optimal. All right, but there's hope. Dr. Frank Logston, the theologian and Bible scholar who assisted in the development of the New American Standard Version. Now, let me just pause for a second before, because I know how good you guys start reading the quote. <laughs> anyway, so I go back a slide, so you can't read it ahead of, I can get ahead of the game. I went to a church for, uh, I guess, seven or eight years that Uh, promoted the New American Standard Version. So they preached from the New American Standard Version. That's the Bible they had in the pews. And at the time, I didn't see anything. I thought, oh, this is good. It's a little easier to read for some people. I still kept my King James because I felt like I knew the King James. That was the language I understood. That was what I was raised with. So I just kept doing it. But I didn't see any problem with it. Well, later... I started to see problems with it. I started to see all these different discrepancies between the two versions. Why is this here? Why does it say this? that's not the same meaning. There's different things. Well, this guy that I'm going to read a quote from was the guy who was in charge of the translation for the New American Standard Version. Now, here's what I'm saying. My point is, is that this is a version that was accepted by many, many churches as a good, legitimate translation. Now, it's actually not as popular today at all. It's significantly less popular today. But this is one of the, one of the quotes that's great, because this guy comes forward to say what actually happened for him. Now, keep in mind, when, he, when, you, when we read what he says, that this is the guy that was in charge of translation. All right, He was in charge of the translation. You would think that a guy that's going to be in charge of translating a new version of the Bible would understand the history of the Bible and the differences in the Greek and the Hebrew between the modern critical text and the Texas Receptus. Would you assume that? Not true. Not true. And this is the problem with many pastors today. Look, if you're a pastor of a church that has, let's say, a bigger group of, of sheep to tend, all right, and you're preparing messages, and you're counseling people, and you're teaching, and you're, do, you're in meetings, and you're doing all these things, right? how much time do you think you have available to do additional research into the Greek? You don't. I mean, honestly, you don't. What you have time to do is try to keep up with this and still maintain a family life. That's what you're trying to do. They're too busy. They don't have time. So they accept what they see. They don't dig into it. This guy's going to say that. I must, under God, renounce every attachment to the New American Standard Version. I'm afraid I'm in trouble with the Lord. We laid the groundwork. I wrote the format. I helped interview some of the translators. I wrote the preface. I'm in trouble. I can't refute these arguments. It's wrong, frighteningly wrong, and what am I going to do about it? Now, the arguments he's referring to are the arguments that the modern critical text is an inaccurate representation of God's word. And he knows that the NASV is based on this. We'll we'll see. When questions began to reach me, at first I was quite offended. I used to laugh with others. However, in attempting to answer, I began to sense that something was not right with the New American Standard Version. I can no longer ignore these criticisms I am hearing, and I can't refute them. The deletions are absolutely frightening. There are so many. Are we so naive that we do not suspect satanic deception in all of this? Now, remember, as we've gone through, we've showed all these places where things were removed. References to God as that Christ is the Son of God, right? We see this over and over. This is what he's talking about. Upon investigation, I wrote my dear friend, Mr. Lockman, explaining that I was forced to renounce all attachment to the NASV. The product is grievous to my heart and helps to complicate matters in these already troubled times. I don't want anything to do with it. The finest leaders we have today haven't gone into it, the corrupted Greek text, just as I hadn't gone into it. That's how easily one can be deceived. You can say the authorized version is absolutely correct. How correct? 100% correct. I believe the Spirit of God led translators of the authorized version if you must stand against everyone else, stand. Now, Obviously not a light statement. A very strong statement where he's basically saying is the NASV is bad. It's bad. And you should trust the authorized version. That's essentially what he's saying. Coming from the guy who was the head translator of the, NA, of the NAS, I think that's a pretty strong statement. I think you'd agree. All right paragraph that ends paragraph eight, can you believe it? I think it was only nine classes ten paragraph We have two more paragraphs left. Paragraph nine. The infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. Therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which are not many but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly so we 're going to get into this this. Yeah, the, the next two paragraphs are both about a very similar subject, and that is scriptural interpretation. So where do we go to understand what the scripture says? Right? The, where do we go? Now, this is a huge problem. It's a problem for us. It's a problem for pastors. It's a problem for everyone. Because here's what happens. I was listening to such and such and he said such and such. I was reading such and such as a book, and he said this. I was watching an online sermon, and he said this. Okay, well, the the point is, is that it doesn't matter what they said. It matters what the scripture says. Now, could they help you explain it? Yes. You're going to see that. We're going to mention this specifically. Yes, absolutely. But what we can't do is equate biblical leaders or scholars, or church fathers, with the Scripture. They are not the Scripture. The Scripture is the first place, the the only place that we can trust is perfectly true. You understand what I'm saying? Now, how many of you have seen, in person, if you don't already have one, Calvin's Institutes? His three-volume series, Calvin's Institutes. You've seen it? Yeah? Yeah, of course. Well, I was, I was hoping maybe Branson Paul, you'd raise your hands. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's a three volume set, it's about that wide. Would you say that's about about that wide, something like that. I guess it depends if it's hardback or paperback. But uh so it's a lot of pages is, is kind of my point. It's a, there's a lot of info in there, right? And Calvin, uh whatever he writes on, he does he he's not uh short winded. Right? He's very, uh, kind of like John Owen, you know. He, he, he writes long on whatever the subject is so that people understand it properly, I think is his goal, it seems to be his goal, is he covers kind of all the bases. Calvin is not 100% right. He's not. There are things Calvin says that our doctrine disagrees with. There are things that Calvin said that he disagreed with later in life. He repented of them. So, he also recognized john calvin that he was still a human in the flesh who can make mistakes so we say well calvin says this where where should we go to confirm that calvin is right the scripture does that make sense we have to still go to the scripture we have to still look at the scripture we have to see this in the scripture and look you say well yeah but you know if brance reads the scripture he understands it a lot better than I understand. Okay, may be true. But understand that you have the same explanatory system that he does. And what's that explanatory I just made that word up. That's a free, you can use that. Explanatory system, the Holy Ghost. You have the Holy Ghost like he has the Holy Ghost. Do you have the same background experience and education in these things that he does know? But you still have the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost can still speak to you about the passage you're reading. And the beautiful thing is if you don't understand it, then you can go to brands. You can ask. I'm having a difficult time with this. He might know the answer. He might have a difficult time with this. He might be able to show you other passages that explain that. We're going to look at a couple of those this morning. But that's the that's the kind of the 5-minute summary of what this paragraph is. So we got some bullet points here to review. So Scripture itself is the only authority we can appeal to. If not, if we don't go to Scripture, to where else can or could we go? Like if we say we don't understand the Scripture, well, what's got a higher authority than Scripture? What's got an equal authority as Scripture? Nothing. Any other source that we prefer to the Scriptures are usurping the authority of God's Word. In other words, if you say, well, such and such has these, uh, <laughs> I was trying to think if I wanted to use a good one or a bad one. Let's use a bad one. Joel Olstein has a whole series on this book. And so I, re- I go to him every time I want to reference what this means. Not a good source. Not a good source. And really the point would be, What is? He, where is he going for his explanation? Is he using other scriptures? You know, this is a telltale, by the way. When you see pastors explaining something that a scripture said, do they refer to other scriptures, or do they quote other people? If they're quoting other people, not as strong an argument, is it? Now, it's not wrong to quote other people. You quote other people to help people understand what it means. Are you with me on this? And, and look, so it totally makes sense that if whoever's preaching or teaching, they look at something and they're looking themselves to make sure that they understand what the passage says, and they see somebody, let's say John Owen, who talks about this issue and does a really great job, what would be best for them? To use his words as if they thought of it, or to say, John Owen said? It would be to say, John Owen said, right? That would be honest, to say, this person said this. Now, they wouldn't quote them, they shouldn't quote them, based on, This person is saying what I like, so I'm going to use this. It should be based on scripture. The explanation should be based on scripture. Does this make sense? So we're not discounting making quotes. It makes sense to make quotes because those quotes could be the best way to explain a particular concept, verse, whatever. But it still has to be going back to scripture. Look, if if the preacher is quoting secular leaders, non-Christians, you need to stop listening to them. Are you with me? Now, if he says, "Well, today we're going to talk about medical mandates," and here's what Governor Granholm said, okay, come well, on, that's that's different, all right. They're not using Governor Granholm to explain what a passage of Scripture reads means, you know. They're they're quoting Governor Granholm about that particular issue. Do you see what I'm saying about the difference? So, don't say, "Well, Brian said if they're him by secular, we need to get out of there." No, I'm not saying that. Brian's probably has somebody today. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that. Just keep it the context, right? If we're going to listen to uh, Mahatma Gandhi to explain what it's like to have peace, bad quote, bad quote, right? All right. Well, I think you guys (laughs) get It seems like we don't need to beat that up too much. Okay. Well, I think in this, the we don't have a lot of we have a lot of verses, a lot of references to these things. So I think that in this in this section, even though they're in some of the footnotes that hopefully you read ahead, um, some of these I'm going to uh, I'm going to read. So I'm going to read this one, which is Second Peter, 1, 20 and twenty one. And this is a familiar passage. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture was any private interpretation. Now, we use it when we talk about interpreting the Scripture. We use it when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. But it also applies to this, and that is that the Scriptures are there for us to use. Right? It was not just God's word audibly to people it was actually he inspired individuals to write God's word so that we would have access to God's word, so that there isn't a question, there isn't some kind of a grapevine scenario or telephone, whatever game you played, where it loses the meaning as you go down the row, right, on down 2,000 years or 3,000 years, depending on which book you're talking about. All right. Christ and the apostles answered criticisms or questions with scriptures. So, in other words, they didn't just explain it. They used scriptures regularly. Uh, let's see, Acts fifteen thirteen through 18, James speaking. After they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon had declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, and to disagree the words of the prophets, as it is written. And he quotes the scripture, Matthew 12, 2 through 8. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did and how he was hungered, and the other with him? So this is the apostles are grabbing the wheat as they walk through the field. They confront Christ about it, and he says, he, what does he do? He quotes the scripture as a response. I'm not going to read the whole passage. Matthew 19, 3 through 6, the Pharisees also came to him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he goes on. Again, he's quoting the scripture now, Genesis. Matthew 22, verses 28 through 33. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife shall shall be of the seven, for they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, do ye do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God so again he's quoting the scriptures that we see in mark twelve nine through eleven what shall therefore the Lord of the vineyards do he will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard to unto others and have ye not read in the scripture the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner so again quoting the scripture acts twenty eight 30, 20, 28, 23 and when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him in his lodging to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. So he's teaching them about Jesus from where? A quote from Joel Olstein? No. He's reading he's teaching them the scriptures out of the scripture. He's teaching about Jesus, I'm sorry, out of the scripture. All right. We utilize the wisdom of other believers in the, their studying of the scriptures. But the only infallible source we have are the scriptures themselves. And of course, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So, does the scripture leave something out? Is there something not included in the scripture? No. Thoroughly furnished. Thoroughly furnished. When we seek a full sense of any scripture, and this is what the confession says, the full sense of any scripture, we look for other passages that either directly or indirectly explain the issue further. I'm not going to read these two passages, but actually I'll read the first one. So this is a comparison between Galatians 5.17 and Romans 7.14-25. Both deal with the same issue. Let me read to you Galatians 5.17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now Romans 7.14-24 explains about how difficult it is to do what we should do because our flesh wars against our spirit. And our spirit wants to do good things, but the flesh prohibits it sometimes, fights against it, resists it. So there is, if you say, well, I, I hear what Galatians 5.17 is saying. I know that's true, but I don't understand it fully how it's going to work. Well, Romans 7.14-24 explains it in detail. Right. A danger to us is to base our theology on a single word, phrase, or verse. We must ensure the fuller explanations available in Scripture support our theology, not contradict it. Sorry to say, many, many, many people get derailed because they take a verse and they isogete it. What is isogete it? Well, it is what it sounds like. They isolate it, they take it as standalone, and they base their theology on this. Is this a good idea? No. In fact, our confession is saying it's not a good idea. We should be using scripture to explain what scripture says. If there is only one reference to the scripture. Don't base your doctrine on it. If that's the only place you see it in the scripture, don't base your doctrine on it. It better be in other places. Or you're likely to not base your doctrine on the right thing. Do we have any examples of this? Lots of examples of this. How about foot washing? Well, foot washing. Do we see this in the scriptures? Yes, right? Do we see it more than one place in the scripture? Yes, we do. Did Christ do it? Yes, he did. When? Lord's Supper. He actually did it one other time, too, but he did it in the Lord's Supper. That's the main one we remember, right? Because he washed their feet and then basically went right into the Last Supper. This was this was like right there. But we don't wash feet. But some churches do. They wash feet before every Lord's Supper. Why? They see it in that one passage with Christ. Now remember, we quote, usually, when we do the Lord's Supper, we'll quote Paul, explaining to the church at Corinth how they should, what they should actually do right? How they should examine themselves. He he explains how communion should actually, the Lord's Supper should be conducted. He doesn't mention foot washing. It's not there. There's no other passages in the New Testament where the Lord's Supper is mentioned, where foot washing is mentioned. So we don't base a doctrine off of that one instance that we see. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? Now you might think, well that seems silly, yeah, but some do. I mean, this is the way it is, so we have to be careful of this, right? You see something? You say, "Well, this says that you know uh, he they went out and they were told not to take a cloak." So I don't need to wear a coat. <laughs> That's not what that passage is about. And you see it someplace else where they're explaining why you shouldn't wear a cloak? No, you don't see that. So you don't isolate one verse. Or one group of verses that say, well, it says this here, so that must be the way that we're to behave. That's not appropriate. Find someplace else in Scripture that backs that up. Now, you say, well, do every one of our doctrines have multiple references to other places in Scripture? They don't. They don't. But they have inferences in other places. We see that in other places. So, does every time that we see baptism mentioned, even though we could get into the whole Greek about well, the word baptizo, and that it actually meant submerged. But besides that, does every place in Scripture where it says that they were baptized actually explain that they were submerged, that they went out into the water and they were submerged? It wasn't a sprinkling. No, every passage doesn't. Some do. The Ethiopian eunuch, right, went down into the water. Christ went into the river. We see a number of places where that happens. But every, when, when the Roman gets saved in Acts... It says he and his house were baptized. It doesn't say that they went out down into the water. Are you with me on this? So, if we were to eisegete, and by the way, this is a problem that we have with infant baptism, or with, you know, with infant baptism, is to take that and say, well, it says that he and his, he went, home, he went home, and he and his household were baptized. So, we can eisegete that and say, well, that means that they baptized the children. Okay. That's what Presbyterians do, by the way. Because how do you deal with that passage? How do they justify infant baptism? Well, look, he baptized his whole house. Okay, first of all, it doesn't say he had children. It doesn't say it. Second, it doesn't say if everyone got saved. We believe they did because that's what we see every place else. That would contradict every place else if they got baptized without being saved. Remember the conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch? And by the way, the proof verse from the Ethiopian eunuch about if you believe, then you can be baptized, gone in the modern critical text. That verse is gone. Interesting. Okay, I think we beat that up enough. God commands we go to Scripture, which is His revelation. We see this in Isaiah 8, 19, 19 and 20. We do not appeal to our inner light or feelings. These are New Age ideas that contradict God's revealed word. Only there can we find God speaking to us. Okay, so that almost... (laughs) I feel like in that particular thing, I'm really preaching to the choir here, okay. But, um, you know, people listen to this on Sermon Audio, so who knows. But the bottom line is, is that how we feel about anything does not trump God. Now you think, well, of course not. No, of course it doesn't, Brian. That's, That's... Why would you say that? Well, because a lot of people believe it does. Right? I mean, the teaching of the emerging church is is that God's word is not God's word until it means something to you. So the Bible isn't God's word. It's when you read the Bible and you feel like it's God's word, that's God's word. Now, that's the ultimate in narcissism. Right? You and your feelings are what constitute God's word. I don't know about you, but that's a scary thought. Because how do I know what's right or what's wrong? More than likely, I'm going to get that wrong. I need God's word. I need that to be the thing that I look to. And it can't be just because I think so. It has to be because it is so. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter if I think gravity is real or not. I can jump off that table and I'll find out for sure. Peter speaks the words that should be our goal. John 6, verses 64 through four, 68. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man may come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who has the words of eternal life? So, Peter said what we should think, which is, there's nowhere else we can go for the words of eternal life. It is only through Jesus Christ and his word of the Bible that we actually have those words. All right, finish another paragraph. Boom, just like that. Paragraph 10. The Supreme Judge... By which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all degrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be none of, no other but the holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. So it doesn't matter what the councils of men say. The council of Nicaea. Was it necessary? It was. Did they deal with some significant heresy? They did. But they do not trump God's word. The early church fathers, the Nicene fathers, which were before the Nicene Council, the anti-Nicene, which were after the Nicene Council, none of them contradict God's word. The reformers, none of them can contradict or supersede God's word. We don't go to the reformers to find out what the scripture says. We go to the scripture to find out what it says. Now, the reformers can help us to understand things. So can the early church fathers. So can current church leaders. They can. But our source, the ultimate, who we turn to as our final determiner, has to be God's word. We study the early church. Those closest are to or directly taught by Christ We study the early church councils and the early church fathers, but in all cases, they are references and may help illuminate us, but the scriptures are the ultimate authority. We just read 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. We also have 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Believers have, this is actually a reference, a verse that references what I said a few minutes ago. Believers are the ones that can understand what God's word says. The spirit can illuminate us to understand what God's word says. Unbelievers do not have that. Are there basic truths in the scripture that an unbeliever can understand? Of course there are. You think that people don't understand, thou shalt not kill? They know what that means, right? They understand what that means. But don't forget, the teacher of Israel at the time of Christ, the guy who was the one, who was the authority across all of the Jewish synagogues, Nicodemus, said, what does it mean to be born again? Paraphrase. What does it mean? He didn't understand. Christ said, you must be born again. He didn't understand what that meant. Did he? He didn't understand it. It had to be explained to him. Sounded like foolishness to him. Now, am I suggesting that Nicodemus was an unbeliever? I am. That's exactly what I'm suggesting. How about now? I don't know. I like to think that after that conversation with Christ... He got saved. We certainly see some evidence later where he tried to object to Christ being arrested that might indicate that, but we don't know. This mandates that we, should know, that we know how to study and search the Scripture. So you can't say this. You can't say, we're going to have to go to the Scripture, go to the Scripture, go to the Scripture, and yet we don't know how to study the Scripture. Right? You have to know how to look things up at the Scripture. Well, I have no idea. What I do is I go onto Google and I look for a book or I look for a quote from somebody I recognize, like Joel C. No! <laughs> yeah. Should you, could you use those commentaries by others? Of course you could. But it shouldn't stop you from using the Scripture to look at Scripture. This is why if you have a Bible that has no cross-references, I suggest you look for a Bible that has cross-references. I mean, this is the simplest, easiest thing for you to begin to find other verses that have to do with the same subject, right? Now, there's also a concord almost, almost all Bibles that you buy, not like the Pew Bibles, but other Bibles that you buy, almost all of them, have a concordance, right? They have some references to them where you can find things on the same word that you're struggling with, right? And some of them have a pretty expansive one where they may actually talk about the concept, Right? And then some Bibles have uh, study notes in the bottom, like a footnote, right, where they might explain a little bit better what that means or talk about that it's also referenced here, it's also referenced here, it's also referenced here. Now again, keep in mind, the footnotes are not God's Word. He didn't write it with footnotes. That's a commentator putting in his footnotes. right? So you still have to go to those other scriptures and see what they say. You have to see that, yes, that matches up. Okay, I, I could see that. I can see how that happens. Now, understand that there are some things that you're going to have a difficulty finding in the Scripture, but they're not major doctrines. Now, here's what I mean by that. Let's say uh, we see a reference to the Nicolaitans. Right? Heretics. Revelation, Christ says that he hates the Nicolaitans. Now, where do you go in the scripture to find a definition of the Nicolaitans? There's only reference twice. So the full definition of what they believed is not in the scripture. But that's not a major doctrine. You understand what I'm saying? That's not, so don't get hung up. What about, what's the weight of a shekel? Do we see shekels in the Old Testament, particularly over and over again, as a weight of something? The person weighed so many shekels. They gave him so many shekels of gold. They gave him so many shekels of silver. We see this, right? Well, some Bibles, in the back, or even in that section, may have a table that says what a shekel was. gives you the weight, right? And what a cubit was, and all those kind of things, right? Do we see someplace in the Scripture where it defines what a shekel is? No, we don't see that. Again, not a doctrine. Are you with me on this? So, don't get confused about, well, I can't find another verse that explains what a shekel is. Okay, move on. (laughs) that <laughs> that part isn't the important thing. What happened is what's important, not the fact of how much was a shekel. Like was this guy a millionaire or was this guy getting 10 bucks like a Starbucks or something? I mean it doesn't it's not the you understand what I'm saying, right? That's not the point. The point isn't the shekel. The point is the story. All right. So we cannot hope to verify those human sources if we do not know how to study the scripture ourselves. So those human sources Preachers, commentators, footnotes, etc. If we don't know how to study the scriptures ourselves, to read the scripture, see what it says, try to understand what it says in comparison to the other scriptures, it's very difficult for you to know what's true and what's not true. right? You can't, Look, every, everybody is at some point in this path. There is no one that I've ever heard of, maybe you guys know somebody, who believed that they understood every scripture in the Bible. That there wasn't some that they had a, they weren't quite sure what that meant. And it's easy to pick some, right? How about Ezekiel? <laughs> uh, what was the wheel that he saw in the sky? Well, not defined. Not defined. Do we base our doctrine on the wheel? No. No. We don't need to. We don't need to know what that is. We know it's something supernatural. We know that. Was it a UFO? Well, Obviously, it was a UFO. Why do I say that? It was an unidentified flying object. He called it a wheel. He didn't know what it was. He called it a wheel. What did it look like? We don't know. Was it a drone? I doubt it. That part doesn't matter. What's being revealed to Ezekiel and what happens through that process, that story, that's what matters, right? So don't feel like, well, I have a hard time not understanding because I can't understand this and I, you know, I decided I was going to start reading my Bible, I started with Ezekiel. Don't don't start with Ezekiel. Okay, Save that. Go go back to Ezekiel. Understand that you are going to be learning as you read your Bible better how to understand the Bible. And don't feel afraid to read a, a paragraph, a chapter, or a book again. Because undoubtedly, you will learn more as a result. Does that make sense? Now, has any, I don't know, I don't want to ask who has. That would be a bad mistake for me to do that. Okay, hopefully you've read the book of John. Now, I just want to say that it is a very common to give new believers the book of John. We have some tracts of John and Romans, right? I remember discussing it. I do not remember if we got it. Okay, so we have some tracks on the book of John. And what are those for? Well, generally, they're for, we give them to new believers, Now, if you've read the book of John, you know that there are things there that are not as clear as other books. Right? Nicodemus didn't even get it. When Christ said, you must be born again, he had to explain, am I supposed to re-enter into my mother's womb? No. You have to be born of water and the spirit. He explained it was a spiritual rebirth he's talking about, a spiritual birth, not a physical birth. So, when we give the book of John to somebody, we're not expecting that they're going to read the book of John and now they got that one done. Now move on to Romans. Get all that concept with the law done. No, it's because there are great spiritual truths that some are very clear in those books. Others take a little time. So don't feel like because you don't grasp everything immediately that somehow the Spirit isn't moving in you. That's not true. That's not true. And don't forget, by the way, that like we're all not going to be... Biblical scholars. Right? And, and you don't have to be. You don't have to be. You just need to keep learning, keep growing, more like Christ. By the way, did the apostles have it all down pat? No. No. All right. Well, some scriptures for that. 2 Timothy 2.15, Romans 15.4, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. All right. Traditions of men. Nor any councils, nor even the church itself, are the ultimate authority for controversy of religion or any other issue that the scriptures speak to. The scriptures themselves are God's word and as such have no superior, no authority above them. And this is important, by the way. The paragraph says it, but we need to remember this true. The church itself is not the ultimate authority of controversy. The elders are not the ultimate authority for controversy. The scriptures are. The scriptures are. Are the elders sinful men? Not at this church, but other churches, they, they are. No, we fail, we sin, we make mistakes, we misunderstand, we misinterpret, this can happen. The church is made up of people like that too. No institutions of man. You say, well, yeah, but what about this college? No, it's the same. It's made up of people who can make mistakes. The only infallible, non, no mistakes No error source that we have is God's word. And honestly, when it comes down to it, that's where we should draw the line. It should be at God's word. It should be at God's word. It should not be anything else. We cannot scripturally argue that we should have pews in the church. There is no scriptural argument for this. Why? It doesn't matter. Now, we think it matters. It doesn't matter. Because if it did, God's word would say it. It honestly doesn't. Churches in Russia, Russian Orthodox churches, stand the whole service. There are no seats; they stand. That's it, the whole time. Some Greek Orthodox, same way. You don't believe me? Look it up on YouTube. They get services on there. I've seen some. I had a Russian Orthodox neighbor. Talk to him about it. Yeah. He was in a wheelchair. He's the only one allowed to sit. Everyone else stood the whole time. Church in Detroit. It's that's, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail. But the point is this. We need to reconsider where we draw the lines on what, God's, what we're doing and what we say Well, we're doing this because God says to do this. Really? If the word doesn't say this, no we're not. We're doing it because we want to. We're doing it because we don't want to. We're doing it because that's our opinion. That doesn't make it sinful. But we can't ascribe God to what we want. Does that make sense? We can't ascribe God to what we want. We can ascribe God to what God says. Anything else is us and our opinion. In the end, God's kingdom is what matters. Not our kingdom. Not our opinion. In fact, if you haven't figured it out yet, He's going to do things for his kingdom that you didn't see coming. You didn't see that coming. You didn't see how that was going to happen. You didn't know that was going to pan out that way. That's not how you thought God was going to get that done. You thought he was going to do something else. Anybody happen to anybody else? Is there anybody it didn't happen to yet? Happens all the time. You you probably didn't know. I, I don't know. Anybody know they were going to be sitting here 10 years ago? I didn't. No one else knew. Right? God did something that you didn't see coming. Right? We get to decide that God getting his will accomplished is what the scriptures say his will is. It's not what we say his will is. It's what the scriptures say his will is. Ephesians 2.20, Isaiah 8.20, and Psalm 119.128. Let's close in a word of prayer.